So good morning, listeners, and welcome to Come and See Inspirations, and this, the 27th of February, it's the 8th Sunday in Ordinary Time. My name is John Keeley, and help me to present the programme again, uh, the podcast again today. Shane Ambrose, good morning to you, Shane. Good morning, John. How are we keeping? Good, thank you very much, Nate, Shane. And also, I know Shane will join me, as usual, in welcoming those listeners who, from various parts of the world, uh, tune in to us each week on our podcast especially those who are housebound, lonely and struggling in some way, and especially those listeners who keep us in prayer, and please keep that up because we need that. Our programmes, our podcast, include interviews on faith topics, inspirational music and reflecting on the Sunday Gospel. All of our podcasts can be heard at Come and See Inspirations at buzzspread.com. Also, our hist- Historical uh, podcasts can be heard at sacredspace102.blogspot.com and also on Spotify and Facebook at Come and See Inspirations. Our text is 087 That's 87 6066 or email Come and See And as usual at this part of the program, we again welcome back Shane again to share with us Saints for the week, and I know Lent is coming up on Ash Wednesday, but let's see where Shane's going to take us. Yeah, so in terms of liturgical laws and ends this week, a couple of things just to draw people's attention to. So as John mentioned, next Wednesday, folks, is Ash Wednesday, so it is the start of the liturgical season of Lent. So uh, before we get to that, so Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, we are still in the eighth week in ordinary time. So for those praying the Psalter, we're on week four. Four. Um, for those, for then when we switch into to Lent, it's it's proper for the season, as it's called, um, starting on on Wednesday. So um, Monday and Tuesday. So on Monday, <clears throat> liturgically, we mark the feast of Saint Hilary, who is a pope. And uh, I just picked this guy out because um, just just there were a couple on the list, and he was the quickest one to find. He very much involved with the, uh, no, one of the reasons I picked out Pope St. Hilary actually is the fact that in a leap year, his feast day actually falls on the 29th of February because he died on the 29th of February in 468 in Rome. <clears throat> so uh, he's one of the early popes uh, involved very much with the Council of Chalcedon, fighting the various heresies of the period. He was a trusted aide to Pope Leo the Great. Um, very much involved with kind of setting out the position of the of the of the papacy in terms of leader in spiritual matters, and very much involved with reform within the diocese of Rome and parts of what were Gaul and Spain. So that's Saint Hilary, whose feast day is on the twenty eighth of February. On the first of March, we celebrate the feast day of Saint David. David, of course, on the is is on the Irish calendar, even though, of course, he is a famous. Saint of Wales. He's the patron saint of Wales, where he was an abbot and a bishop in the 6th century. And one of the reasons being several of the Irish saints were his pupils, and he influenced monastic uh, developments in Ireland. And he died around 601 AD. As we said, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. It's a day of fast and abstinence. Now, it's not actually a holy day of obligation. Uh, Many people think it is, but a holy day of obligation is one where you must attend Mass. But obviously, most people like to start um, Lent off on a good foot and then go to Mass on Ash Wednesday to receive uh, the imposition of ashes. Uh, Fast and abstinence is basically, it's one of the two days in the year where we are required as Catholics, if you're over the age of seven and under the age of 70 and you're in good health, 
you are required to fast and abstain. So that's kind of two meals, two collations and one primary meal, and you stay off of meat for the day. Don't think it's overly strenuous, folks, uh, given the whole push we have about healthy eating and so on and so forth. Um, obviously, uh, we're heading into Lent, and we'll talk about it more next week. We're going to have Father Frank Dewey on the program giving us a reflection on Lent next week. Uh, obviously, Lent very much focusing on prayer, fasting, and abstinence. Um, sorry, prayer, fasting, and 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 almsgiving. I beg your pardon. Um, so obviously, uh, next week, Father Frank will be on just to give us a reflection on that in terms of the of the the prayer side of it. The following week, we will have an interview with Trocra because obviously it's the time of the year for the Trocra Lent and Appeal. So that deals with your almsgiving. And over the next couple of weeks, we'll be on and off talking about different things to do with prayer support and resources for the Linton season. So next week, if you tune into the podcast, folks, have a pen and paper handy. We will go through some resources that we're compiling um, for people to have during Lent, both in terms of prayer, but also from a family point of view, activities to do with the kids uh, and stuff like that. So that's Wednesday, Ash Wednesday. Uh, Thursday then is the first, is the Thursday after Ash Wednesday. That's literally what it's called in the liturgical calendar. Obviously, for the season of Lent, the saints take a back seat. They're downgraded. We don't commemorate them as we give with their normal pomp and circumstances. Um, but we will mention them on the program. So on Thursday, which is the 3rd of March, it will be the feast day of St. Agnes of Prague. Now, Agnes is an interesting saint. She was educated by Cistercian nuns. She avoided marriage throughout the years. She was engaged to be married to various different high personages. By the way, I should have mentioned she is a princess. Um, she's the resident of St. Elizabeth of Hungary. She was the sister of King Wenceslas, him of the Christmas Carol. Um, she established a confraternity of the Crusaders of the Red Star to look after a hospital. And she eventually founded a poor Clare convent from in Prague, and she introduced herself in 1234. Very much uh, so. That's uh, one of the royal saints of Europe. She died on the 6th of March 1282, and she was beatified uh, or canonized by John Paul II, actually, in 1989. Friday, then, the 4th of March, is the first Friday for those maintaining the observance. It's the feast day of St. Casimir, who died in 1484, um, who is a saint associated um, with Poland. He's a Polish saint, so very much associated with Krakow. It was strong, uh, the, the way it's described in the, in the Ordo is, strove to promote peace and the unity of Western Europe. Um, obviously, another one of the royal saints. So that's Casimir, whose feast day we celebrate on the 4th of March, which, as I said, is also the first Friday. Saturday, the 5th of March, is the first Saturday and is the feast day on the Irish calendar of St. Kieran. Kieran, very much associated with uh, Cape Clear and County Cork, that's where he was born, numbered among the pre patrician saints of Ireland, so before St. Patrick. And um, he went to the continent where he was baptized and later ordained a priest and bishop. He returned to his father's territory in Ossory, where he lived as a hermit and became, he set up a monastery in Sagar. Um, which uh, is in, in that neck of the woods. So that's St. Kieran's Feast Day, which we celebrate on Saturday. Now, a couple of other bits and pieces, John. Uh, actually, just before we go on to those, as it is the beginning of the month, we also just remind people of the Pope's prayer intention, which is a Christian for a prayer for a Christian response to bioethical challenges. We pray for Christians. Facing new bioethical challenges, may they continue to defend the dignity of all human life with prayer and action. 
Now, just to mention as well that on Wednesday, the 23rd of February, at the Pope's general audience in Rome, he made an appeal for peace in Ukraine, given the circumstances that are happening there at the moment and the Russian aggression against the Ukrainian border. And the Pope has set aside that Ash Wednesday will be a day of fasting and prayer for peace in the Ukraine. So this is the second day that the Pope has set aside prayer for peace in the Ukraine. Um, Pope actually was quite distressed and was quite was noted on by people um, reporting on the general audience when uh, talking about it. And obviously he had been briefed on the alarming crisis and the threat in terms of it. Europe, Ukraine has one of the largest um, Orthodox churches that is in communion with Rome and is uh, it's, 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 it's one that is very much close to the Pope's. Um, there has been difficulties over the years because um, the relationship, trying to build the relationship with the, the, the Russian Orthodox Patriarch, um, which I mean, Ukraine has always been an issue in that as well. Um, partly, as like the political side of things, the Russian Orthodox Church sees Ukraine as part of its canonical territory. Um, but we pray, I suppose, pray for all Ukrainians, and in particular, we pray for uh, the Greek Catholic Church in that country, who, under the leadership of the major Archbishop. Uh, his beatitude, Slavislav uh, Shuvik, I think is how you pronounce the man's name. Um, so, and as, and as we said, Pope Francis has said, Ash Wednesday is a day of prayer and fasting for peace in Ukraine. One other thing, John, which I just want to bring on to people's attention, there's an interesting uh, report during the week. So the Vatican has published their statistics. Um, now, it's journey statistics for 2020. They're a year behind. But I thought it was an interesting one. We often get asked the question, why is it that certain Irish dioceses don't bring in priests from abroad to deal with priest shortage? And I thought that this actually, this report was an interesting one because it very much sets out why we should not be bringing in priests from abroad. It's a form of exploitation. And the statistical office in Rome noted the imbalance in the ratio of Catholics per priest in different regions of the world. So globally, there's one priest for every 3,314 Catholics in the world. But when you break that down, in, in Europe, there is one priest for every 1,746 Catholics, which very much contrasts with one priest for every 5,089 Catholics in the African context. You know, so it is a reason, I suppose, for people to think about it. You know, if we take a priest from an African diocese to staff a parish in Ireland, we are depriving a large number of African Catholics of their services. And it's something that the people need to think about. Our vocations crisis is our vocations crisis in Ireland. It is not something we can solve by taking priests from diocese across the world, however good intentioned we might think it is. So, John, this is a bit of food for thought. Thank you very much indeed. I, I worked for three years in, a, in an African diocese, so it's something that's very close to my heart, and I, I saw the impact of priests of that diocese being sent to staff dioceses in Europe and in the US, and it's exploitation. I think we need to call it what it is. I think we need to recognize what it is. It's first world exploitation of a resource of the African church. And I think Irish people need to be very conscious that's what it is. As I said, our vocations crisis in Ireland is a problem for us. That's something we need to fix. That's something we need to look at. 
um, you know, and that's something we need to be honest about as well. Well, it's something that I certainly didn't know about before, and thanks a lot for bringing it to my attention anyway. Okay, now at this part of our podcast, um, just one little notice I just want to bring to listeners' attention. Um, Each week, the FCJ Spirituality House in Spanish Point in County Clare, uh, run by a good friend, Noreen Lynch. Each week on Tuesdays and Thursdays, they hold a meditation session for half an hour, 11 a.m., Tuesdays and Thursdays. Um, to become involved with that, if you so wish, just contact Noreen at info at fcjspiritualityhouse.ie or call her on 87 477 9115. That's 087 477 9115. Meditation, Tuesdays and 30s, 11am. It's a lovely session. I take part of it myself. And uh, just to finish off our introduction of the podcast today, uh, we'll go for our prayer space. And again, uh, our prayer space is taken from Vision Be Inspired. It's a YouTube channel from Father Flan Lynch, who's a Capuchin priest. Um, and for our prayer space this week, we're going to listen to a meditation that's entitled Getting Started, The Abundance Prayer. And that'll be followed as usual by the beautiful piece of inst- instrumental music entitled Song of Micah. So come back and join us in part two where we'll have a little bit more about synodality. Meditation is a priceless gift. When we meditate, everyone benefits. We ourselves the people we want to pray for, the church and the world. Everyone benefits because meditation generates the power of God's love. Meditate if possible for 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening. If you find that too long, start with 10 minutes in the morning and 10 minutes in the evening. Let us prepare. We sit upright. Feet flat on the ground. We join our hands, gathering in our energy and focusing our minds. Let us be aware of the unlimited power of God's love in our hands. We use it. And with the backs of our hands, we push out all the unhealthy attachments. Busyness, fear, worry, anxiety, selfishness, greed, envy, impatience, etc. We have created sacred space between our hands, sacred space in our minds and in our hearts. We bring our hands down and rest them comfortably. We close our eyes gently. We drop our shoulders. We relax and let go. We smile deeply in our hearts. Jesus loves us more than we could ever imagine. We continue to relax and let go, content just to be. Choose a mantra that has a sacred sound a mantra that resonates deeply. Jesus, Jesu, 
Isa, Maranatha. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or, praise to you, O Jesus. Your power working in us is infinitely great. Choose the mantra that feels most sacred to you. Jesus, Jesu, Isa, Maranatha, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or, praise to you, O Jesus. Your power working in us is infinitely great. Begin now to say your mantra slowly in your heart, feeling great love and reverence. Surrender to your mantra. Allow your mantra to say itself in your heart. If your mind wanders, come back gently. Start to say your mantra with renewed love and reverence. You can say your mantra often during the day. It is the best way of practicing mindfulness.
So welcome back to part two of Come and See Inspirations, our podcast, uh, which we are broadcasting for the eighth Sunday in Ordinary Time, which is the 27th of February. So in part two of the program this week, we are delighted to broadcast the and share with our listeners the third of three uh, recordings of talks that were given at Knock Shrine during Advent 2021. The talks deal with the issue of the Synod on Synodality. And today's discussion is being given again by Father Eamon Conway, who is a lecturer in theology at Mary Magdalene College in Limerick. As we said, all, as we said all the way through, the full recordings are available on the Knock Shrine uh, YouTube channel, including the questions and answer sessions. But we are only just sharing with you the actual talk given by the various speakers. Father Eamon Conway's talk this week speaks um, uh, speaks on synodality. Why does it matter? Uh, so I think it's an important one for, for people to listen to and to share. And we would encourage listeners to share it with others as well and to encourage people to take part in the synod conversations that are taking, par- around, taking place around the world at the present time. So good evening, everybody. It's lovely to be with you all again, those of you here in person and those of you joining us uh, on the uh, camera, whether through Facebook or YouTube or watching this uh, later in the week. Uh, I enjoyed very much watching uh, Julie Kavanagh's lecture last week, so I have an idea of what she uh, communicated to you. And so this is a kind of a continuity of that. Anyway, let's begin with a little prayer and we'll just maybe invoke the Holy Spirit because we're very much... Uh, in a sense, putting ourselves under the guidance of the Holy Spirit in the context of synodality. Come, Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. Send forth your Spirit, and we shall be created, and you will renew the face of the earth. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. So it's lovely to be back with you. And when Julie was speaking with you uh, last week, she actually she put it very succinctly that the first of these lectures, in a certain sense, was the the what of synodality. The second one, which she did with you, was the how of synodality. And then this third one is the is the why. Why does it matter? And if I can just go back a little bit, just to recap, so we connect up uh, with uh, what I did with you. I'm sure what Julie did with you is still fresh in your in your minds. Um, I talked a little bit about synodality as a way of being church. Um, We're really, in a certain sense, theologians would argue now, we're receiving the teaching of Vatican II in a fresh way. We've moved beyond simply receiving the documents and the teachings to receiving the process of Vatican II as a way of being church, Uh, which, of course, the whole councils were processes, major process of discernment, Vatican II was one of those major processes of discernment, and it's meant to continue on in, in the spirit of synodality. Very shortly after Vatican II, the synods of bishops were formed, and now Pope Francis is pushing us to see that synodality is not just something that rests with the bishops, but rests with the people of God. We called it ecclesial synodality as opposed to episcopal synodality, ecclesi- synodality of the church and not just synodality of the bishops. So it's a way of being church And the church is called to be synodal by nature, this idea of all the people of God, which includes, of course, bishops, priests, and deacons. But, of course, 
the majority of the people of God are, are, the, are, the, are the lay people, the lay faithful. The people of God journeying together, journeying together as God's people under the guidance of the Holy Spirit. So that's, in a certain sense, was the, the what of synodality. And what needs to happen for synodality to happen? A conversion of mind and of mentalities. We need to start seeing things differently. We'll talk a little bit about that in the course of this evening's lecture as well. We need to start seeing things differently, looking at things through new or fresh eyes. We need to be able to listen deeply and attentively. Um, faithful listening. That deep listening, St. Benedict would talk about listening with the ear of the heart. That sense of listening is not just listening to the words, but listening to what's going on in the lives of people. Actually, I loved the way that Julie last week brought it right down to the local community. I was very much encouraging people to listen to one another and to have the courage to speak, um, to speak frankly, as I'm saying here. Pope Francis uses the Greek word parasia for that, have the courage to speak frankly. That doesn't mean to speak in a way that's aggressive or robust, but we speak the truth as we understand it humbly, realizing that some others may hear and have an understanding of the truth that's different, but that's speaking uh, openly, standing, if you like, in the, in, the, in the confidence of what we have experienced in our own lives and letting that out there and see what echo it finds in the lives of others, but also listening to what others have to say in the same spirit. So synodality needs that kind of conversion, not just of structures. I mean, we can think maybe straight away, what do we need to change in terms of structures? But it's actually more mindsets. That deep, attentive listening and then speaking frankly. So there were some of the things I, I raised with you in the, uh, in the first uh, lecture. So why does synodality matter? I'm probably going to give you just three points. And tonight's lecture is not actually a very long lecture or talk. It's, a, it's going to be shorter and, you know, it'll give us a little bit of time for, uh, for conversation. I'm just conscious, having listened to Julie's last week as well, when you're listening online, it's a bit longer maybe than if you're actually in the room. So uh, I, I will be uh, as succinct as I can be. Why does synodality matter? Well, my first answer is going to be actually a very traditional one. It's a little bit like an argument from authority. It matters to Pope Francis. <laughs> and he has an oversight and an overview and the grace, hopefully, and the charism of the office of being the Pope. And if it matters to him, I have to take it seriously. You know? So Pope Francis, as I said to you the last day, I think he's the first Pope who wasn't at Vatican II in some shape or form. Some of them were there as bishops. Some of them were there as advisors. Pope Francis wasn't at Vatican II. He's also the first pope in over 800 years from outside of Europe. He's got a certain freshness and a certain perspective on the global church. And he is convinced that synodality is what matters in the church of the 21st century. And even if I don't fully understand it, I have to take that on board. So that's a very traditional argument in a certain sense. It matters to the pope. It kind of matters to me. Um, and I have my own views on maybe how ready we are here in the Irish context for it. Maybe compared with, you know, not just Ireland, but Europe. Europe is in a pretty bad state in terms of faith. And, you know, I think getting into the mood of synodality is going to be a bigger struggle for us than maybe, you know, he's coming out of uh, quite a, an experienced church in terms of synodality in Latin America. 
we're going to have to really dig deep, I think, here in Ireland and in other parts of Europe. But I still think it's something we have to take seriously. That's maybe my first point, really. Um, the second one is that I think it's important to see synodality as a response to a world in crisis. One of the big things for Pope Francis, and it was right there in the conclave that elected him, he got to speak. Um, you know, I know we talk about elections of popes as not being, you know, it's the Holy Spirit at work, of course, it's not meant to be uh, campaigns, but Pope Benedict did the funeral of Pope John Paul II, and his homily was a bit of an election manifesto. Similarly, Pope Francis got to speak at the conclave, the pre-conclave meetings, and he really hit home on a number of points. And he said, the church does not exist for itself. Uh, he quoted uh, Henri de Lubac, a, a theologian, who said that really the church, whatever light the church has, it's the reflected light of Christ, just like the light of the moon is the reflected light of the sun. The moon is no light in and of itself. Similarly, the church has no light in and of itself. It, only whatever light it has is the light of Christ. So the church needs to know its place, and its place is at the service of the world. It's at the service of the kingdom of God, bringing faith alive in the lives of, of people, particularly those on the margins and the peripheries. And he talked about this, we'll come on to it in a moment, this self-referential attitude in the church, narcissistic attitude that it's all about the church, and it's not. And the church, in fact, for Pope Francis, will only ever be reformed when it, when it gets over itself in a certain sense and gets out there and gets down and dirty. And that was the language he used, actually. Gets down and dirty, responding to the needs of people uh, on the ground. And our world is in crisis. So Pope Francis wants the church to be, uh, he's used a lovely image of the, the field hospital, um, at the service of the wounds, heal the wounds, heal the wounds. And the depth of that crisis is very difficult for us to grasp. When you're going through something, it can often be very difficult to actually appreciate how big it is. And Pope Francis has said what we're going through at the moment is a change of epoch, not just an epoch of change, a change of era. When we look back over the last couple of thousand years, we can see shifts, epochs in history. You know, the medieval period, the modern period, now the postmodern period. It's very difficult. I'm sure the people going through those changes of epoch didn't quite notice them at the time. But Pope Francis says we're going through one as well. This is a change of epoch, massive change. And I think even if you look back over your own lives and think of the changes um, that you've experienced, and just the whole impact, for example, of technology, um, urban, rural, all of those things, and they have an overall effect. The family, for example, and these are just examples, is in massive crisis everywhere. The institution of the family. When the Philippines, which we may still think of as a fairly traditional country, when he was there, Pope Francis spoke actually most, most powerfully about how the family has been colonized, the colonization of the family, the breakdown of the family. The document on the joy of love, Amoris Laetitia, which came out of the two synods on the family, very much summarize the, the challenges that families and family life faces. But the institution of the family is so fundamental to human life. Um, Pope John Paul talked about all of culture being handed on, the, all of the church through the, through the family. And yet that now is very much in, in crisis, fa fatally wounding the bonds of belonging upon which we all depend 
uh, Pope Francis has said. So that's just one example of, of, of how there's a global crisis. How do we respond to that? Of course, the whole movement of immigration, mass immigration that Pope Francis has, has witnessed so strongly to the pain and the suffering, and of course then the breakup of families that results from that as well. And then ecological, the ecological crisis, which he's drawn our attention to in Laudato Si, uh, in his encyclical on what he calls care for our common home. And how, in a, you know, we're, we're turning our world into, into dirt, actually. He uses that phrase in the opening part of that encyclical. We're turning it into a pile of dirt. We're, we're destroying our planet. Um, that ecological crisis. And then we can see, of course, the wars, the conflicts, which, which always affect the poorest of the poor. I mean, they're the ones who suffer when, when, we, when we have war. Um, and then the various divisions. And a lot of this results for Pope Francis from what he calls the technocratic paradigm. Now, that's, a, that's an important phrase. It's not an easy phrase to understand. I just have a, a quote here from um, Pope Francis on that. And when he says, the tech, it's a technological way of looking at the world that distorts how we see nature and how we see ourselves. This is in Laudato Si. He says, it's only a small step from believing that aspects of nature are exploitable or disposable to believing the same about human life. What is the technological paradigm? It's where I see everything as, in, as a means to my ends. Nature is a means to my end. It doesn't have any value or dignity in its own right or integrity in its own right. It's only what is in it for me. But he says that's only a small step from that kind of technical way of looking. Like my iPhone here. I, I really don't think this phone has much rights <laughs> or much dignity. It, it's rights and its dignity, its value and its use depend entirely on how useful it is to me. That's a technical way of looking at reality. But I can't, I shouldn't think the same of a human person. I shouldn't think the same of our environment or of nature. But unfortunately, this technocratic way, this autocratic way of looking at everything in terms of what's in it for me, um, a kind of a human, that human beings, in a sense, everything, or even one human being, the individual me, uh, everything else is there to serve me. An anthropological or an anthropocentric way of looking at reality. So this technocratic paradigm um, is, is destroying us because, of course, if we treat others in a diminishing way in terms of their dignity, we diminish our own dignity as well. So this is at the heart of the global crisis, as Pope Francis is. And by the way, others have said this. There's a marvelous book, just not long before he died, the uh, chief rabbi of the UK, Jonathan Sachs, wrote a wonderful book on moral morality. I've used it with students very powerful book saying exactly the same thing about the crisis that individualism and anthropocentrism uh, cause uh, really to human relationships, the breakdown of the family. Um, you know, it's, it is actually a particular contribution that I think each of the world religions is aware of and is making and is calling our society to at this time. Again, from his book, Let Us Dream. By the way, if you had one book and you haven't read it, and I'm sure it's in your bookshop, uh, Richard, um, Austin Ivory, uh, who's really the leading papal interpreter, papal bi bi biographer, um, Austin did a, a long interview with Pope Francis um, over the last year and a half or so, 
um, by email back and over. Pope Francis would send him text, he'd send them back, and they, they were doing this back and over. And Let Us Dream is the result of this. It's a wonderful book, well worth reading over Christmas if you haven't read it already. But he says, if you think abortion, euthanasia, and the death penalty are acceptable, your heart will find it hard to care about the contamination of rivers and the destruction of the rainforest. For Pope Francis, as indeed it was for Pope Benedict, but he says, the book of nature is one and indivisible. Human ecology, ecology of nature, one and indivisible. If we begin to disrespect one, we will disrespect the other. This is really at the heart again of the, of the global crisis. And it's brought up most powerfully in, in Laudato Si, Pope Francis' encyclical, also in the documents that resulted from the Synod on the Amazon. That's a shorter, the shorter documents, and again, would be worth looking at. Carida Amazonia, beloved Amazon, um, as well. So why synodality? Because synodality will enable the church to better respond to the global crisis. We need all the gifts of all the people of God to meet the crisis that our world is now facing. Synodality enables these gifts to be, to be um, maximized, to, be, to flourish, to be at the service of uh, the church, at service of the world, the church to be better at the service of the world. So, that's, so the first point I made was it matters to Pope Francis, and I have to take that seriously because he's the Pope, frankly. The second one is that there's a global crisis. And, you know, we need, we need the church to be at its, its best to respond to this, and this requires change in the church, um, and that's why synodality will help bring that about. The third point is, and this is the last main point I'm making, Synodality matters because the church itself is in crisis, you know? Uh, and I don't think you need to go too far to accept or realize that. Um, we we'll each have ways in which we see and experience that, that matters to us. The church's credibility. Ireland is probably like a petri dish at the moment for, you know, for, for how a, a church that was once dominant I mean, it's almost like a laboratory example for a church that was once dominant um, has, has really completely lost its, its credibility and its footing. Um, it's hard to imagine another country, certainly even in Europe, that has, has, has the same level of, of, of uh, diminished respect in society that we currently have here in Ireland. Um, and to a large extent, you know, we have to take it that the sins and the crimes of those who were once in positions of trust um, have contributed hugely uh, to that. Pope Francis talks about the inability as a community to forge bonds and create spaces that are healthy, mature and respectful. That Within the community of the church, you read the letters of St. Paul, read the, the Acts of the Apostles, when you get the sense of the spirit that should dominate in the community we call church, the spirit of service, the spirit of generosity, uh, of, of inclusion, of celebration. We have to ask ourselves, is that what people experience in our church today? Look at the letter, look at St. Paul, the Corinthians. You know, all the different gifts, the different parts of the body at the service of the whole. Is that the way we experience church today? Um, this is what Pope Francis wrote just a couple of years ago to the bishops, the United States bishops, 
who obviously now are quite a divided, the American church is a very divided church. He says we need to change our way of praying, and particularly how we handle power in the church. What does power mean in the church? Power in the biblical sense, in the New Testament. Power is power for. It's never power over. It's power that enables life to be. It's a power that enables flourishing. Again, enables the gifts that are given for the service of the kingdom of God to flourish. It's not power over. It's not controlling power. Is that the power as we understand it, as it's lived and experienced in our church community? How we exercise authority the exact same way. Authority is, is, is at the service of human flourishing. It's not an end in of itself. So why does synodality matter? Because it hopefully will help us to deal with some of these aspects of church that diminish the church's mission that mar the church's mission. Um, it'll help us to tackle some of those. Um, Julie referred to, I think she used the word, the scourge of clericalism. And I think she might actually have been quoting Pope Francis. I would add in hierarchicalism. It's a new phrase that's emerging. Um, James Keenan, an American Jesuit, has a very fine article on hierarchicalism. It's a little different from clericalism in the sense it's the ambition that can exist within the church. Um, even within within with the bishops and hierarchy and so on, um, Pope Francis has spoken so much about clericalism; it's hard to keep up with it. <laughs> um, in Evangelii Gaudium, uh, he talked, and again, right at the beginning, 2013 of his papacy, a self-referential attitude, a group think that a mentality that weakens. Um, and really inhibits people experiencing the Lord. Um, weakens our outreach to those who await the proclamation of the gospel. It gets in the way of the mission of the church. Now there's a couple of things to be said about clericalism. Clericalism is not at all confined to clerics. <laughs> Let me be honest, lay people can be just as clerical as clerics. You know, and enforce this lay-cleric distinction. Um, and it gets in the way, in terms of synodality of speaking the truth, that you actually feel free to, you know, if you, if you find yourself in a situation, we'll wait for the priest to leave the room before we'll speak our mind. That's clericalism at work. If father isn't open and doesn't create a, a context in which people can actually speak frankly, that's clericalism at work. If I'm not really open to hearing the lived experience and being touched by it, this is why Pope Francis talks about the antidotes to clericalism. One of them is proximity. Actually allowing yourself to be close to the woundedness in people's lives, the vulnerability in people's lives. If I'm not open to that, if I'm not open to being wounded myself, actually, that's what being vulnerable means. I, I, I will be prone to, to clericalism. It's a way of keeping people and thoughts I don't like to hear or think about at a, at a distance. Um, a perversion at the root of many of the evils in the church, Pope Francis says, where personal comfort um, is, is prized over, over, over service. And as I say, it's not just clergy that can be guilty of this, but, but I think as lay people. Now, the other thing I wanted to say about this is I don't think it's actually unique to the church as an institution. You'll find a version of clericalism in the judiciary. You'll find a version of clericalism in, in, in the medical profession. 
you know? So, but, but we're not meant to be like other bodies. You know, as the Christian community, we're called to a different kind of way of relating to one another, which is where it's not about us. It's about our service of the Lord. It's about enabling the people to encounter the gospel and so on. So we need to work on this as church. And again, until we do so, there will be problems. Julie made a good deal last, last week about the image. I don't have it on my slide there now, but the image for the synod of journeying together and the bishop was somewhere in the middle of it all. He was still wearing his pointy hat and carrying a stick, but he was still in the middle of it all. Um, but it, it, that, was, that was the idea that, you know, there's a certain overcoming of the... It doesn't mean, of course, we treat everybody with respect in the church, but a deferential attitude that gets in the way of speaking truth is not helpful to the gospel. Of course, we always need to speak truth in such a way that it can be heard, and that includes humility and respect and so on. So this is one of the challenges we face. So in a sense, just to recap again, why does synodality matter? It matters to Pope Francis. It matters because we have a world in crisis that the church needs to serve. And thirdly, it matters because the church itself is in some crisis. Is that okay so far? Okay, and we're nearly finished all I really wanted to say to you this evening. Crisis always brings with it opportunity. Okay, that's the good news. Okay, so I'm not at all phased by the crisis we're facing in the church. You know, that's the deck of cards we've been dealt. The Spirit is with us. God is with us. At the end of the day, we're, we're the servants of the gospel. I'm told, and I don't know which it was, Richard, maybe you know, that there was an Archbishop of Tum at one stage who had as his Episcopal motto, God is my helper. And people used to say that was the problem. <laughs> he saw God as his helper. <laughs> we're God's helpers, <laughs> you know. So look at, you know, like as somebody, I heard somebody say this, let God get the ulcer, you know. <laughs> I'm not going to get an ulcer. I'm, I'm here and I hope I can. We'll do whatever we can. But let, we, won't, we don't need to get the ulcer, okay. But we need to see the opportunities as they present themselves. An opportunity for openness, engagement, with the experience and perspectives of others. Julie again spoke a lot about the need to include voices that at the moment don't feel they're being heard. I think that's important. And again, the fact that we listen to somebody doesn't mean we necessarily agree with them, but we owe them the respect of hearing what they need to say. Not merely so we can assert our own point of view, but in fact we can be drawn into a communion and a community that changes us all. You know, when we listen with respect to others, it, it can change us. Um, and being heard can change the other. And we become part of a community and a shared communion. Um, and then to deepen a sense of co-responsibility. And I think that's one of the opportunities that synodality brings about. That we, we as a people of God, we share responsibility, each in our own way, according to the gifts we've been given and the vocations we've been given. We share in the responsibility to be the best church, the best incarnation of Christ as Christ's body in our place and time. So the global crisis 
It's also the crisis within the church requires the church to change in order to remain faithful to its mission. It's not change for its own sake. It can never be. In actual fact, change in the church can and must be quite conservative. It's changing to remain faithful to the mission of the church. Not to change could actually mean infidelity to the mission of the church. As Pope Francis says, today's vast and rapid cultural changes demand that we constantly seek ways of expressing unchanging truths in a language which brings out the abiding newness. The deposit of the faith is one thing, not talking about changing that, but the way we express it, the way we live it, the way we communicate it, that is another thing. And that's what synodality is about. Synods are not about changing the, the events of the synods, which Julie spoke about, are not about changing church teaching. They're about how do we relate church teaching? How do we further understand it? How do we bring the questions of today to the unchanging truth of the gospel? And we draw something new out of it because we're coming to it with new questions and new experiences. So we need to change. We need to be open to changing. We need to put on those new lenses, as I said to you at the beginning, um, if we are to be faithful to our mission as church. And now finally, Pope Francis talked a lot at the outbreak of the pandemic about this as being a time to choose. You may recall um, his, I thought it was one of the most moving moments of, of the pandemic really, that lonely night in Rome, Rome totally deserted, the small white figure, I'll show you the slide in a moment. Pope Francis is where the danger is, there also is the saving power. Now that's a profound Christian insight. It's very similar to St. Paul saying, where, when I am weak, then I am strong. Moments of risk are moments of faith. When you face a risk, a challenge in your life, that's an opportunity to deepen your trust, to deepen your faith. This, if we experience our church as being in crisis, this is an opportunity for us to deepen our faith, to deepen our sense of trust, deepen our understanding that the church is in God's hands, that we are in God's hands. Where the danger is, there is also the saving power. And so what Pope Francis said that lonely night in Rome back in, in March of 2020, this is a time to choose what matters and what passes away, the, the ephemeral, to let go of what doesn't have eternal or, or long-term consequences, a time to separate what is necessary from what is not. It is a time to get our lives back on track with regard to you, Lord, and to others. That's what synodality is about. Get our lives back on the path, back on the track. Um, it is about putting ourselves in the mentality and the mindset that enables us to listen to the Spirit and respond with generosity and with courage and with the gifts and the, and the charisms that we have at our disposal. So that's really why I think synodality matters. I think it matters if we are and are committed to being the best church we can be at this moment, in this place, and in this time. Thank you very much. And just to finish off part two here on the programme today, we'll play a piece of music uh, sung by the choir of Hexham Abbey. This one has been entitled, Here I Am, Lord. So join us again in part three, where we read and reflect on the Sunday Gospel.
So welcome back again to the third part of Come and See Inspirations. My name is John Kelly, still joined by Shane Ambrose. So this part of our podcast each week is where we read and reflect on the Word of God, the Sunday Gospel. Before that, we'll ask Shane, as usual, to pray this prayer before reading and reflecting on Scripture. Thanks, Shane. Lord, we thank you for putting us in the presence of your Word, which you inspired in your prophets. May we approach this Word reverently, attentively, and humbly. May we not despise this Word, but receive all it has to say to us. We know that our hearts are closed, often capable of comprehending the simplicity of your word. Send your spirit to us so that receiving the word in truth and simplicity, our lives may be transformed by it. Let us not be resistant, Lord. May your word penetrate us like a two-edged sword. May our hearts be open to it. Let our eyes be closed and our minds wander. But may we give ourselves entirely to this listening. We ask this, Father, in union with Mary, who used to recite the Psalms, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thank you for that, Shane. So the Gospel for today, for the eighth Sunday in Ordinary Time, is taken from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 6, verse 39 to 45. A man, sorry, excuse me. Jesus told a parable to his disciples. Can, can one blind man guide another? Surely both will fall into a pit. The disciple is not superior to his teacher. The fully trained disciple will always be like his teacher. Why do you observe the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, Brother, let me take out the splinter that's in your eye, when you cannot see the plank in your own? Hypocrite. Take the the plank out of your own eye first, and then you'll see clearly enough to take out the splinter that's in your brother's eye. There is no sound tree that produces rotten fruit, nor again a rotten tree that produces sound fruit. For every tree can be told by its own fruit. People do not pick figs from thorns, nor gather grapes from brambles. A good man draws what is good from the store of goodness in his heart. A, A bad man draws what is bad from the store of badness. For a man's words flow out of what fills his heart. The Gospel for today, for the 8th Sunday in Ordinary Time. Shane, would you like to share a thought or two with us, please? Yeah, so, this this Sunday's Gospel, I was kind of going, where am I going to go with this one? Um, So I suppose first things first is, this is, it's almost Lexio Continua. It's continuing directly on from the Gospel that we've had for the last two weeks. It starts with the Beatitudes, and last week, of course, was the Gospel where Jesus gave us the Golden Rule. This week's Gospel, um, generally, the, the Scripture scholars kind of accept that it's a series of quotes or sayings of Jesus that Luke has put together. So you kind of have to break it down. It's not necessarily that it's a coherent story that's been told. Um, so you, you need to break it down into its constituent parts. So there's about four different elements of it. Now, we might not necessarily go through the four of them this morning on the podcast, but what I'd say to people is kind of read, reflect, and break it down. And actually, during the week, I saw uh, on the notes of Father Frank shared with us, he was actually saying to people, mark it out on your reading so that you can actually see where the breaks are, which is actually a good idea. Mm-hmm. Um, so in terms of breaking it down, I suppose, again, there's a couple of things in it, I suppose, that are challenging for us and very much continuing 
the challenge that's been put out for us from the last three weeks, last two weeks Gospels. Um, very much putting it out there in terms of Luke presenting Jesus' teaching to us. And then we have to ask ourselves today, how do we engage with that teaching? How do we live that teaching? How do we react to that teaching? Because as we say again and again on the program over time, Lexio involves engaging with the Word of God, not as some historic text that was written 2,000 years ago, but it's the Word of God that speaks to us in our present time. And the Church always says to us and asks us, how do we read the sign of the times and respond to it, listening and reflecting on the Word of God? Um, that was the great expression that came out of the, the Second Vatican Council, reading the sign of the times. And for us, I suppose that's one of the questions, when, and it has to be done, each of us has to do it individually. Now, we can talk about it, you know, you can talk about social injustices, you can talk about structural injustices. But when we're looking at the Word of God, it's very much asking ourselves, how does this speak to me this week and in the life that I lead, that I want to lead, and what's it calling me to do? You know, we are sinners who are called to be saints. That's the great expression that's out there, arising out of this wonderful thing that is our baptism calling. Um, so breaking it down, I suppose, it's a couple of things. The first one is very much, you know, that react, that reminder to us that where we are learning things, we can only ever go, get to the same level as the person that's teaching us. And that's kind of just a reminder to us that, you know, not to have over expectations of where we can go and what we can learn. And also, I suppose, reminding us that, um, you know, that we also need to ask ourselves the question, you know, looking at the question that Jesus puts is, you know, have we ever been blind? Uh, sorry. Sorry, the teacher one. I beg your pardon. Uh, kind of asking ourselves, who are we to teach others or how have we been able to teach others? And also very much as asking ourselves, you know, what must we do to be fully trained disciples? Um, you know, which is the expression that's put out there in front of us. The other one is, why do you observe the splinter in your brother's eye and never notice the plank in your own? Um, this one very much, I suppose, uh, you know, the other question is seeing the wood from the trees, I think, is the, is the common day parallel that we might use from this one. And I think this one is very challenging because it's very much asking ourselves, you know, um, focusing on faults on other people without ever looking at maybe the faults that are in ourselves. And we don't like it. You know, nobody likes picking up the issues that are wrong with themselves. We don't like looking in the mirror at ourselves and not being happy with what we see. Um, my, uh, my little small nephews and nieces, uh, they make a great point about the fact, you know, when you're pointing at somebody, you know, there's one finger pointing away and there's four fingers pointing back. So it's, it's very much a case of, you know, you stop pointing <laughs> and, you know, I'm picking on, on, on other people. And we could take that kind of metaphor, we could take that analogy and, and apply it to that part of the pericope, part, part of the gospel for this, this Sunday and asking ourselves, you know, how about, how can we say to the brother, let me take the splinter that is in your eye when you cannot see the plank in your own. Hypocrite, you know, very strong. Luke is not pulling his punches here. Um, and he's saying, you know, that, you know, we have to take out the splinter that's in our eye, our, the, the beam that's in our own eye first. So it's very much a call to us that we need to be very much self-aware and to be very slow to rush to judgment, um, no matter who that is. And that's something I think that we need to be very conscious of, particularly in the modern world, where there's a danger of mob mentality. 
um, you know, be it something that happens and there's the social media response and kind of everyone's gets irritated and excited about it. And kind of there's sometimes it's a reminder for us that there needs to be a call for cool heads to look at a situation and not to respond and react on our emotions, which sometimes can happen. You need to, you know, when you, particularly when it affects other people's lives, we need to be very careful and conscious of knowing, understanding the facts and also letting due process happen. You know, it's, we, we can be very quick um, to forget uh, you are innocent until proven guilty. And that's a very important cornerstone of the legal system in Ireland. Uh, but it's also should be something that's a cornerstone of how we approach the situation with people. We shouldn't be rushing in to judge and to give judgment and to assume the worst. We are called to be Christian and to have a Christian response. And, you know, out of that needs to come, um, you know, taking time to understand the situation and then responding to it uh, as the need arises. <clears throat> I suppose the other thing then is that one about the, uh, the fruit and the rotten fruit. Um, I suppose, again, this is one very much Luke speaking to his audience at the time, which would have been very, very much, you know, rural or connected more so with, 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 with nature than anything else, more perhaps than we are in the present time. Although with COVID, John, I suppose it's fair to, see, it's fair to say a lot more people got into their gardening and growing their own vegetables and DIY and all of that kind of stuff as well. Um, you know, um, but obviously as part of that, you know, one of the challenges sometimes when you're growing your own, um, you're growing your own stuff is uh, you suddenly get, they all come at the same time. Yeah, all your tomatoes come together or all your potatoes come together or all your carrots come together, whatever the case might be, you know? And then you're trying to decide how you're going to keep it, how you're going to pickle it, who you're going to give it away to, all that kind of thing. But getting back to the gospel, I suppose yeah, the, there's the, 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 the point that Jesus is trying to make is our, our actions in life, the way that we live, can only come from the heart, can only come from the centre. And one of the questions that we should be asking ourselves this week is, you know, particularly as we're heading into Ash Wednesday and the beginning of Lent, one of the questions we should be asking ourselves is, what is it, what am I drawing on internally? What are the resources that I have internally to live a Christian life? And, you know, that's a call to interiority and a reminder to our common humanity. And very much, I suppose, asking us, what is it that we are cultivating in ourselves in a world which is littered with fake news and bitterness and suspicion and cynicism? You know, how do we experience healing? How do we open ourselves up to learn to forgive, to listen to the other person's point of view, and to cultivate, you know, a sense that out of the abundance of our heart that the mouth speaks, which is a quote I came across, which I thought was very appropriate. Um, you know, are you nourishing your whole self in a positive way? And what spiritual practices do you have that help you to learn from Jesus, the teacher? And I think it's a very appropriate question to ask ourselves as we're heading into Lent, because obviously one of the traditions of Lent is giving up things and abstaining from things. But the other side of it is, in a time-precious world, 
maybe it should be a case of asking ourselves, how do I start something new in terms of an extra moment of prayer in the day, an extra moment of lexio, and sacrificing the time that that takes as part of our Lenten observances. Just a couple of thoughts, John, for this week's uh, lexio. Thanks, Shane. That's uh, certainly food for thought for us all to, all to take on board. And just like yourself, I, I was I was also taken by that by that thought, that concept of being trained like a disciple uh, by the teacher. And so I, I, I took a piece from Michael de Vertai again this week, and I quote just a, just a few lines of what he said. He said, "Good news: the fully trained disciple will be like his teacher." We, Jesus' disciples, are called to be like him. Our our doubts about ourselves, our feelings of inadequacy, arise, in part from the fact that we forget that we did not choose him. He chose us. No one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. We have been chosen. God has chosen to trust us. He believes that we can be true disciples. This should be for us a source of great joy, great humility, determination to be fully trained, and self-confidence. If I am his disciple, it's because he's chosen me and trusts me to be like him. This is something to be celebrated gratefully. And he just finishes off. This will lead us to a new and deeper commitment. We must learn to listen to Jesus and must be willing to learn from him. Otherwise, we will only be like the blind man leading the other blind people and falling certainly into a pit. If we take disciples seriously, we must commit ourselves to listening and learning and being trained. Maybe a thought for us to, this week, maybe to take on board. We can't do it all by ourselves. We need the Lord with us at all times. And no better teacher than Jesus. So that finishes our podcast for this week. Thanks again, Shane, for, for sharing those bits and pieces with us, especially about the saints early on and also about the gospel thoughts. So with that, we'll finish off with our final piece of music. Uh, This one is by actually Audrey Assad. And this one is entitled Be Thou My Vision. So next week, as Shane reminded us early on, uh, until next week where we have Father Frank, uh, Frank Dewey from Newcastle West, joining us to help us to to start off uh, on our Lenten journey with some Lenten reflections. But until then, for myself and Shane, enjoy the week. We'll talk to you again. Bye-bye now. Bye.